All right, good uh, afternoon, good evening uh, to those of us joining from other parts of the world. Welcome to the this week's session in the series Critical Issues Confronting China. I'm Michael Sony, the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Bill Overholt, uh, one of the members of the committee that has been overseeing the Critical, is critical Issues Confronting China series uh, over the last year. The series, as returning uh, audience members will know, is intended to bring uh, studies of academic rigor to the political, economic, security, social, and other challenges facing China uh, uh, at this current moment. Uh, these issues are, of course, of great significance to China. At this moment, they're also great significance to an audience in the United States and to uh, the world as a whole. We are very lucky today to have as our speaker, uh, Bill Bekalis, uh, who I will introduce in a moment, uh, someone who has been studying uh, deeply for many years one of these critical issues. Uh, a few words on format. Uh, we'll follow our usual format. Uh, Bill will speak for perhaps 45 minutes or so, uh, although he's warned me that his, uh, uh, his material is rich. So, uh, but, but we'll try to leave plenty of time for questions. This is a webinar format. So we'll ask you to submit your questions in the Q&A section rather than in the chat or by raising your hands. Uh, I will uh, uh, then make a selection of those questions and pose, uh, pose them to Bill. Um, we apologize in advance if we are unable to get to all of your questions. We've had, as some of you will know, very lively discussion uh, but we'll do our best to get to as many questions as possible. Uh, Bill Bekalis is a Harvard-trained economist and Asia specialist. He currently heads Bekalis Advisors in Washington, D.C., an economic and uh, policy, a political advisory service. Um, he served for a number of years as principal economist for Southeast Asia at the Asia Development Bank, uh, and he's also led uh, a number of highly successful policy programs in China, in Mongolia, and also in the Ukraine. His particular focus is economic and political development trends in China and Mongolia. He is the recent author of a report, Reflections on Poverty Reduction in China, uh, which I learned a great deal about. Uh, I think you will too if you, if you read the report. Um, it is generating considerable interest and indeed some controversy. Uh, his talk today will draw from that report, but extend it uh, as well. Um, as as uh, many of you will know, uh, uh, the uh, elimination of extreme poverty, uh, the eradication, I guess, of extreme poverty in China was announced earlier this year to great fanfare. Uh, Bill will have some comments on that, but his talk today will also uh, reflect on poverty reduction in light of the newest uh, uh, grand policy initiative uh, of common prosperity. So his talk today is entitled From Poverty Eradication to Common Prosperity, Reflections on Recent Poverty Achievements and Implications for the Next Phase of Development. Bill, thank you so much for joining us here at the Fairbanks Center. We look forward to learning from you uh, over the next hour and a half. Thank you so much, Michael, and uh, greetings to everyone. You know, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be here today, uh, especially given that this series is done in honor of 
Ezra Vogel. Uh, I never actually studied with Ezra, but I interacted with him frequently. And both he as a person and his work have inspired me throughout my career. As Michael mentioned, this presentation is largely based on the, the paper that I recently authored uh, that was financed by the Swiss Development Cooperation, uh, and it's readily available on the internet. Uh, now I will uh, move to my PowerPoint presentation, which, and here we go. So I changed the title slightly just to be a little, but it's based basically as Michael said. Um, as attention to poverty reduction, China intensified over the last few years, the need for objective balanced analysis, evidence-based analysis has also grown. I'm a great believer in Goodhart's law that when an indicator becomes a target, it loses its value as an indicator. That's a slight paraphrase. And this is quite applicable now to discussions of poverty in China because the uh, campaign to eradicate poverty has received so, such, has been such a high profile one, has received so much attention, which raises risks of distortion, both on positive and negative sides. So my goal, is simply to give praise where praise is due, criticism where criticism is due, acknowledge where we're not certain about some questions, and then uh, based on the analysis of what has been taking place, identify some key new or current or post Xiaokong poverty challenges and uh, discuss their implications for the new common prosperity agenda, which is being uh, which is being formulated and, and revealed as we speak. Here is an outline of my presentation. I cover a lot of ground here, so inevitably I'll have to be brief on some of the topics and focus a bit more on some of the others. Look forward to discussion at the end if there, if people have questions or want more details about some areas where I move too quickly as I present. Uh, I should warn all uh, participants, my practice generally is not to read my slides out loud. <clears throat> so I will assume that when I put a slide up that you will start reading it and I'll generally read some key points from it and highlight some others and, and hope that you will be able to to follow along when I do this. So first topic that I'd like to look at is issues with counting poverty reduction, starting from a base year of 1978, which is, as we know, the most common narrative. Uh, there's common dis frequent discussion of poverty reduction, sometimes called the poverty reduction miracle in China since 1978, how many hundreds of millions of people have uh, been lifted out of poverty. Uh, I find that narrative problematic in a number of ways, and I'd like to discuss that. Uh, 
in order to understand why poverty reduction has been so successful since 1978, it's important to have an accurate picture of 19 of poverty at that time. I, I emphasize this because one reason, I mean, the reason why 1978 is often used as a base year is in order to imply that all the achievements in poverty reduction have been a result of the reform and opening up policies that were launched in that year. But I don't think that's correct. I think we, we do need to look first at the legacy of the Mao years that preceded reform and opening up. So I have two slides on Mao's legacy, one focusing on more negative aspects of the, of the legacy. As you can see here, uh, there are several that are presented, all important ones, but I'd like to highlight two key legacies that had a negative impact on poverty. One is the dualistic urban-rural structure, which is highlighted uh, near the, the second to last bullet point when the hukou system was set up and cemented very uh, firmly in place under Mao, and uh, along with it, a strong urban bias and investment and price policy. And secondly, Mao's uh, belief that ideology rather than material incentives were the right way to motivate farmers, in particular workers more generally. Both of these had uh, very negative impacts on income and therefore led to higher rates of poverty, most certainly. But it's also important to note some positive aspects of Mao's legacy. As, as I highlight here, um, people's communes the, were not very successful in terms of economic results, but they did provide basic and low, qual uh, low quality, but, but basic rural education and health services to poor peasants who historically had been denied them. This was historic, uh, providing education, raising literacy rates, providing health services, public health services to eliminate diseases that had been endemic for millennia. This was a, a major achievement. Uh, you see how rapidly rural education expanded even during the Cultural Revolution. Mao also, under the, under the, during the Mao years, effective governance institutions were established. There was a strong state that might seem a bit ironic when we think of the turbulence of the Cultural Revolution period, but even the Cultural Revolution was a sign of how much Mao could influence uh, events from Beijing. Uh, there was a strong party-led governance framework in place. And very importantly, there was a major redistribution of land ownership under Mao. It was a violent one, many people were killed, but the outcome, nevertheless, in terms of impact on rural poverty was, uh, was quite positive. 
This is a table that shows in some detail the results of the, the land reform in the early Mao years. Most critically, we see that the poor farmers who made up over 50% of the total uh, farming population in rural areas had their share of total land rise from over only 14.3% to 47.1, nearly uh, commensurate with their share of the population. Their per capita cultivated land rose from under one mu per head to 12.5. This was a major, major achievement. And uh, when we look at China in 1978, we see uh, some of the results of this mixed record of positive and negative uh, legacies from, inherited from the Mao years. If we focus only on GDP per capita, which is what drives income-based poverty measures, we see that in 1978, China was incredibly poor, was poorer than some of the other poorest low-income countries in the world even slightly poorer than Malawi, Bangladesh. You, you see the numbers here. However, as a result of those improvements in public services in poor rural areas, there's a totally different picture when we look at life expectancy, when we look at secondary school enrollment, and it could be, we could look as well at some other key social indicators. China's life expectancy at birth in 1978 was incomparably better than that of the other low-income countries that are listed here. China's secondary school enrollment, similarly, incomparably better. Just compare China with Chad. On income basis, Chad seems to be better off. But look at life expectancies, nearly 66 versus 44. Look at secondary school enrollment, which in Chad was negligible. In fact, we see that China's social indicators were nearly, were, were actually better than even Thailand's, although Thailand's economic growth had been far better, stronger, and sustained in the previous years than China's had. So, the frequent use of 1978 as a base year, its implication that all the poverty reduction that took place in the ensuing years was due to, solely to reform and opening up is, is very misleading. And we can see two reasons. Number one, as we've just seen, by 1978, several key preconditions for poverty reduction were there. Equitable land distribution has been identified over and over as one of the keys to the, the East Asian economic growth model. Other countries that achieved that sort of equitable distribution were much more likely to grow well than countries that did not. Education levels were higher, health levels were better. These were essential conditions for poverty reduction and they were already in place, although income was low. It over, using 1978 overstates the impact of, of uh, reform and opening up in another way. And that is 
we have to keep in mind that in 1978, income poverty levels were artificially high because Mao, Maoist ideology rejected material incentives for production and suppressed income. It, uh, Martin Revalian, in a very recent paper, estimated that roughly two-thirds of poverty reduction after 1978 was simply due to reversing those bad Maoist policies, simply due to allowing peasants to do what they know how to do but hadn't been allowed to, i.e. grow more, use their land better, grow, be more productive by allowing them to keep more of what they grew. So uh, simply getting out of the way in those first few years made a major contribution to poverty reduction. Another fundamental issue about using 1978 as a base year is the one I touched on last year, and I'll, the next slide goes into it more, and that is this sort of strange idea of taking one line and applying it over a 42-year period to, assess, to measure poverty trends over that time. In this, I'm relying primarily on a paper by uh, Chen Xiaohua and Martin Revalian, uh, which I cite below here. Uh, if we apply the current line, which is what China's official uh, data do, to assess how much poverty has changed, or if we apply the World Bank's $1.90 a day purchasing power parity-based poverty line, essentially the entire countryside was poor in 1978. Now, that's true in a sense, but at the same time, we have to keep it in perspective. Clearly, uh, what it meant to be poor in China in 1978 is very different from what it means now in 2020. And it's a strange approach to take one line and apply it over such a long period of time. The much more common global practice is to, as poverty, as countries develop and poverty lines are adjusted higher and higher because the view of what it means to be poor changes, measure poverty in any year according to the line of, of that time. As we see here, China's poverty line has changed it was twice after the first official line was set in 1985. It was changed again in 2000 and then changed again in 2011. And that paper by Chen and Rebellion found, for example, that from 1985 to 2019, if you measure poverty in each 1985, in the beginning and the end, by the existing lines of the time, poverty decreased by only 140 million, rather than the 650 million that would be suggested by applying that World Bank line across the whole period. This is important to keep in mind as well. Now, so those are my issues about using 1978 as a, as a base here, questions to keep in mind. Now, I'll just touch briefly on another theme, and that is looking at the period from 1978 to 2012 and looking, sort of tracing very simply the shifting balance between 
growth-driven poverty reduction and policy-driven poverty reduction. I call it here, lifting people out of poverty or, uh, or having people emerge from their own initiative from poverty. This is a somewhat controversial term, lifting out of poverty. There's a lot of debate among observers that it seems to deny agency to the peasants themselves. If you claim that the government or the party has lifted them out of poverty, um, I should mention an interesting note that was authored by Rob Schmitz, a journalist who works for National Public Radio, who did some investigation and found that actually the phrase lifting out of poverty really has no Chinese language equivalent. The Chinese official publications in English frequently use that phrase or in, uh, presumably in other Western languages as well. But in Chinese, there's no equivalent to it. They say poverty has been reduced, poverty has been alleviated, but there's no, no phrase that means lifting out of poverty. Of course, they do take credit. They do believe the party deserves a lot of the credit for what happened. So again, I'm doing this in one slide and this could be the top and has been the topic of not only of presentations, but of whole books. But I take a look at this slide just to sort of see what I'm referring to, sort of tracing the shift from the really growth-driven poverty reduction in the early years of reform and opening up. There was no real national poverty reduction strategy. The leaders were very concerned with reducing poverty, but they believed the way to do that was simply allow growth to take place and allow economic development to take place. And they were right. This led to enormous reductions in poverty due to increases in rural incomes. Then gradually over this period, rural income growth slowed urban income growth began to be the main source of Chinese overall economic growth and development and the need for programs to address the issues of poor rural areas was recognized and the program started to be set. Uh, and this started in the mid to late 1980s. Some of these programs were more successful, some were less successful, but the trend of widening gaps continued. And it really was after 2002, when, uh, when Hu Jintao became the leader of the party, that there was really a, a pretty dramatic shift of more, more policy-driven attention to rural development and to poverty reduction. So under Hu Jintao in, in this period, there were a number of very meaningful initiatives under this overall rubric of the new socialist countryside. For the first time, compulsory nine years of compulsory rural education were free. Before that, even in poor areas, uh, families had had to pay for their children to attend even primary school. There were a number of other rural public services, the elimination of the agricultural tax and so on. So what we're seeing is a shift in the role 
and the central role that growth was playing in driving poverty reduction to a more balanced role of growth on the one hand and government policy on the other. But I think it's safe to say that as of all the way on up to 2012, it was still growth that was driving poverty reduction most of all. Then 2013 and uh, Xi Jinping's coming into office as the head of the party at the 18th Party Congress and, uh, and a big change taking took place in this pattern that I've just discussed. In 2015, she identified elimination of poverty as a key criterion for achieving the Xiaokang society. This was remarkable. And uh, I want to give credit to him and the party for this change, because until that time, when people discussed what would it mean to achieve Xiao Kong, it was always focused on GDP. It's got to be doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again. Many of you remember how closely that number has been tracked over time. Will China succeed or not in, uh, in doubling the right number of times by 2020 so they can achieve Xiao Kong? She said something quite different. He said the key criterion is not just growth, which of course has to continue, but he says we are a socialist country. This socialism in China means we have to re eliminate poverty as well. And this, over this period of Xi's uh, term in office until so far, um, this became very closely associated with him and really a high, very high profile target. The poverty situation before she took over as a general secretary is described in this uh, slide. Uh, the, the key point worth emphasizing is that in 2011, I'm sorry, uh, the poverty line was raised again to 2,300 yuan in 2010 prices. For the first time, the official poverty line in China was now higher than the World Bank's global line. Before that, it had been considerably lower. Then just to describe quickly the approach that was taken towards poverty reduction in order to achieve this, this goal that Xi Jinping had set, I list here this massive campaign, and, uh, a number of key points about this massive campaign that was launched under the party, under Xi Jinping's leadership. He defined his approach, a new one, precise targeted approach to poverty alleviation and reduction. And you can see here, this was a campaign. This was in many ways almost a Mao-like campaign, sending work teams to the countryside, to each poor county, then to each poor township, and even down to the village level, starting by counting the number of poor people, registering them, identifying key villages, townships, counties that had to be 
that were considered seriously poor, massive mobilization of human and, and financial resources, which we'll discuss in a bit. But um, the key point then for our discussion is the last one on the slide. That is when in 2016, the 13th five-year plan was set, it formally set the target of eradicating poverty by 2020. And it defined that as raising above the poverty line, the income of the remaining registered poor households. Uh, this uh, is a very specific definition of poverty. And we'll discuss that further as we go down. But if you take a look here, also quite interesting, the binding and indicative poverty target in the 13th five-year plan, I've encircled and read the binding targets. I think you most are aware of the difference between them. These are the ones that absolutely had to be met. You'll see again, the focus is on building on that initial census that had been done by sending those out those work teams villages that have been registered as poverty villages, originally 128,000 of them, all had to have their hat taken off, as the Chinese expression is, emerge, no longer be labeled as poverty villages. Same for the 832 poverty counties. Uh, from a human rights point of view, a somewhat more problematic binding target of the number of people who would be moved under relocation-based poverty reduction, one of the key methods that was used, basically 10 million people. This, this goal was not offered to 10 million people the opportunity to move. This goal wasn't make sure that 10 million people move to much better places where they will be happy and, and have a very comfortable and good life. The goal was move. 10 million people, and it was a binding target that had to be met. This effort to eradicate poverty was identified as one of the three great battles to be won. The rhetoric around poverty eradication was highly martial. It was a war, and it was a relentless drive to achieve victory in this battle, whatever the cost. And she was very closely associated with it personally and regularly issuing these strong exhortations. The other two great battles, most of you know, were reducing financial risk and improving the environment. Those were important too, but they were a little more amorphous. They were binding environmental targets to be sure, but the, really the clearest great battle to be won to, to achieve Xiao Kong. The one with the most high-profile target was eradicating extreme poverty. I do want to mention, because it's quite uh, praiseworthy and quite important, that although the income poverty was the main focus of uh, this poverty reduction campaign, there were also... Um, there were also non-income dimensions of poverty that were targeted. So this famous expression about uh, so eliminate the two worries and guarantee the three services. This was a constantly uh, 
discussed and worked on part of the campaign, making sure that people not only had income, but had food, had clothing, had access to education, healthcare, and housing. The resource mobilization that was organized to achieve these goals was staggering. I, please, you can see this and you can see the contrast between government spending of 1.6 trillion yuan in these years compared to only 204 trillion, the 204 billion yuan during the whole previous poverty reduction campaign. That was just part of what was mobilized during the last eight years. Enterprises invested. There were all sorts of other investments that took place as, as well. Assignment of counterparts, wealthy areas, enterprises, and government ministries all assigned uh, poor areas that they needed to help. I was working in the UN in China in this time. Our counterpart was the Ministry of Commerce, the agency I worked. Ministry of Commerce had a county, a poor county in Hunan that they were responsible for assisting and they wanted us to help out. So this was really, uh, everyone was called on to participate in this. The last point here is on this slide is critical. The capacity to mobilize resources in this way, this campaign approach, uh, is a great source of pride and is cited by the leadership as an example of the capacity of the current institutions to accomplish remarkable things. But at the same time, I would argue it also demonstrates the limits on the usefulness of this approach because inevitably questions arise about cost effectiveness when so much money is thrown at this target in such a short time, and also about sustainability. This is not a sustainable long-term approach. In any case, in November 2020, Xi Jinping issued what I now call his eradication proclamation, that extreme income poverty had been eliminated as according to the current definition. And it's worth taking a moment to acknowledge the historic significance of that, even though I will indicate I have some skepticism about the accuracy of the claim. This was a remarkable historic moment. It is barely a hundred years since the famous book was written in the West, China, Land of Famine. And now China had basically announced that it was saying goodbye to poverty, that famine, floods, poverty were going to be a, a thing of the past. And whatever standard one uses and whatever quibbling I might have about some of the claim, this is certainly a remarkable achievement. So now the quibbling. Has, uh, has absolute income poverty actually been eradicated well, I make three points here. There's no question that the lives of tens of millions of rural poor people have been improved. Working at the UN and discussing with other colleagues, we all had projects in poor areas where we found this. And I'm not saying that we caused it, far from it. In fact, an issue for agencies 
such as UN agencies who were doing poverty alleviation work during this period was, can we make any difference given how much the government is already doing on its own? What, why, what added value do we have? We found everywhere that we were working that lives were improving dramatically. Second, I do have to note that there's no statistical evidence to contradict the claim that all of these uh, poor households had been lifted out of poverty. But at the same time, there is pretty, the actual data on poverty reduction is pretty sparse. Where were all those poor people originally? How, how many were reduced? What is the situation of other households? That's hard to find. Third, most importantly, as remarkable as these achievements have been by any normal global practice, what has been done in China is not the same thing as the eradication of extreme poverty. This is uh, based on the difference between a static definition of poverty and a dynamic one. So the goals that China set were having identified the poor households in that initial census, they were all going to be lifted out of poverty by 2020. But there was little factoring in of the dynamic nature of poverty, which is a, has been recognized globally as a critical factor, critical characteristic of poverty. It's not just chronically poor people who have to be raised out and then kept out. There's a constant churning. People go into poverty and out of poverty. Uh, they're new, new poor every year, not just the ones that were registered two years earlier and so on. So as China through this period, year after year, set targets and met targets for reducing, for lifting out of poverty, those are registered poor households. Inevitably, there were new poor households that were uh, emerging. And it's not clear at all that these were being captured in this work and in the statistics. And events in 2020 made this very clear when COVID hit, because as COVID hit China and incomes plunged in the, in the first quarter, really first half of 2020, the government announced very firmly COVID will not prevent the realization of this critical Xiaokang goal of eradicating poverty by the end of the year. But it became clear that what that meant was the last 5.51 million registered poor who were still there at the end of 2019 were going to be lifted out of poverty. And none of the other registered poor were going to be allowed to fall back in. But there was relatively little, actually very little attention to providing income support to other vulnerable households who weren't in that group of previously or currently registered poor. Um, UN did some household surveys at that time together with the Chinese government. And this was a finding that was very clear when we went into poor areas. If you were a registered poor household or had ever been, you received a lot of support to make sure that you didn't, that COVID didn't keep you or push you back into poverty. But others who also had great needs, but who had never been included in the registered list, 
received much less support. Gavikal uh, Consultancy did a very interesting paper. Uh, I, we won't go into it in detail here because of time concerns, but basically it compared the household income support that China gave in the first quarter of 2020 with the household income support that the US gave in the second quarter of 2020 when COVID hit in the US. And you can see that in, in China's case, the impact on household income of government support was very small, much, much smaller than it was in the US. I'm, the point is not to judge which is better, which is worse. The point is simply to say that if this, if this is not what we'd expect in a country, I mean, in China's case, in a country that had announced that it was determined that COVID would, that despite COVID, they were going to eliminate income poverty by the end of the year. If poverty were defined by the normal global sense of including all, all households, much larger income support would have been needed. In fact, the China's COVID poverty response reflects some systemic challenges. And that is, it, poverty is seen only as rural in China. As by definition, China poverty is a rural phenomenon. But some of the most vulnerable groups who were hit hardest by COVID were in urban areas. Some of the ones listed here, migrant workers, especially the ones who were still there, I lived in Beijing through COVID. I, like many people, saw shop after shop, uh, hair salons, all sorts of small businesses shuttered as a result of the lockdowns that took place. That had a dramatic effect, which has been uh, documented on the income of the migrant workers who were still there, gig economy workers, food delivery people, and so on. But their income, their poverty, there is simply not included in any official statistics. So when I express my skepticism about whether income poverty has actually been eliminated, it's because of this uh, failure to take into account the, more, the dynamic nature of poverty, failure to adequately identify people who, because of the, any sort of shock, COVID being the most extreme one, have fallen into poverty uh, after, after that initial uh, census and registration of poor households had taken place. So moving ahead, the new poverty reduction agenda, we, uh, I see three main threads here, redefining poverty and addressing, addressing structural causes and expanding social protection. Uh, as we've seen, the China's poverty line has been adjusted upward twice before. Uh, now, at this point, it would be totally appropriate to set a new poverty line for China. It should include urban people, which it never has before. Now that 60, nearly 64% of the population are urban residents, including many vulnerable groups, it could be a higher absolute income-based line, or it could be a other type of line, relative 
looking at your income compared to the median household income of, in the in the society, or it could be a multi-dimensional one. Um, so that's one, redefine poverty, include urban and set a new line that's more appropriate for a country which is almost an upper income country as China is. Second, instead of this top-down and targeted approach, look at a deeper underlying structural causes of poverty. So urban-rural gaps. The hukou system has long, in my view, ceased to serve any positive purpose. And however, as in the 2020 service, there were still over 770 million people with rural hukou over nearly 55% of China's population. Interregional gaps persist. And this drive to, for innovation and development could widen them. Gender gaps are a very serious challenge in China. They, although labor force participation and wage gaps are not greater than they are in other countries, they're widening in China, not shrinking. And for the reasons that I list here, the professions that women are channeled into and other factors. Aging population uh, is another, presents another set of structural poverty challenges, the need for better care for older people, and then also the need for better education for younger people as the workforce shrinks. But choices have to be made between investment in elite institutions which will create the engineers and scientists that technological innovation require, or in much greater investment in rural education. Uh, and another structural cause of poverty is the lack of progressivity in China's fiscal system, both on the revenue side, which is heavy, heavily dependent on the value-added tax, and on the expenditure side which is uh, tends still to give too little uh, funds to local governments in poor areas to fund their uh, social services. So there's discussion about the property tax, that would be a positive step, but a progressive personal income tax that would allow redistribution from wealthy to poor areas would be a, a very important step. Third, the need for robust, well-funded social protection systems. Uh, the second point here, uh, quoting the IMF uh, 2021 Article 4 report, IMF is usually quite diplomatic when they find something that they're not happy with. They say progress has not been as great as had been hoped and so on. But for social protection, they said systems are still woefully inadequate. They need to include migrants, and, and they need to include other groups who are excluded now. Now, as we move into common prosperity era, I'm afraid that my assessment is, although it's still early, there's little sign to date that the party is ready to include these priorities that I've identified in this new common prosperity agenda. So far, it seems the official line is simply poverty has been eradicated and they're resisting setting a new line that would say that, well, now 
there are still poor by the by a new definition. So although there had been a lot of discussion in advance of the 14th five-year plan of a relative poverty as a new priority and setting a relative poverty line, I see no sign that that's taking place yet. There had also been discussion in our meetings with the leading group on poverty reduction about including urban poverty in their mandate. But now they've been redubbed the Rural Revitalization Agency. So the view that poverty is rural has been, they're doubling down on that. Ministry of Civil Affairs who manage the DBAL social assistance program are looking at near poor. That's something like raising a, a line, but they are they have a limited mandate and limited funding and they, Technically, they are not the poverty reduction organization. And there's really no sign that uh, a large increase in social protection is, is, un, is coming. Um, quite like Senator Manchin in West Virginia, it seems the party does not seem to want to create an entitlement society in China. And there's concern that too much spending on social services would do that. In terms of hukou reform, uh, the leading expert on hukou in the US, Kamung Chan in Washington, uh, in the University of Washington, he observed, as you can see here, that hukou reform has actually regressed. And then the share of population who live in urban areas but have rural hukou has been increasing since 2014 when the hukou reform agenda was announced in terms of gender imbalances, gender inequity, declining fertility rates are a very hot topic in China today. And they seem to be leading to even greater emphasis on women's roles as mothers and caregivers, which is not does not bode well for chances of addressing the structural gaps to women, uh, improving their economic status. So I will stop here um, assessing whether the common prosperity agenda is likely to address the challenges that I've identified here. Uh, it's still early, but there certainly are signs that the party has learned the wrong lessons from the poverty eradication campaign and that top-down and possibly unsustainable measures narrowly targeting individuals and sectors are going to be relied on. The pressure on wealthy to contribute to charity has been identified over and over as one key part of common prosperity. That is not a substitute for, fisc for progressive fiscal reform. And in my mind, the key test over the coming years will be hukou, serious hukou reform and better abolition because how can you really have common prosperity in China when the country is still divided so sharply between these two groups, urban hukou and rural hukou. Thank you, uh, I'll stop here and I welcome questions, comments, corrections, additions, and so on. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm, I'm pausing for a moment just because I actually have been typing throughout and I want to get your last line down because I want to use it. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, uh, thanks. Thanks, Bill, for just a, uh, uh, just a terrific and illuminating presentation. 
uh, one of the factors that Ezra always talked about when we were when we were identifying possible speakers, or when he was identifying together with Bill Overhold and Bill Shaw, uh, um, uh, um, potential speakers, was the question of balanced a balance and balanced presentation driven by data rather than than partisanship. And I think you've really uh, done a splendid job today, as I as I as I knew you would. Uh, in, in offering us a balanced but still illuminating and very thought-provoking uh, presentation. Uh, as you said yourself a few minutes ago, the point is not to judge what is good or bad, but to look, to look carefully at what the data tells us. So this is just tremendous. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions. Let me, before I, before I ask my first question, let me remind the audience. Uh, I see we have more than 60 people viewing online. Uh, to submit your questions in the uh, in the Q and A, um, I'm sure Bill Overholt has questions too. But I'm gonna I'm gonna start with with uh, well, let me start with one broad question, and if there's time, we'll come we'll come back to me. Uh, so I'm I'm very much uh, in favor of this question as a of of or this idea of challenging the the the, the conventional periodization uh, and challenging the wisdom of 1978 as the as the dividing line. Uh, from which to, to measure. It's actually something that I'm working on in my own project on rural China in the 20th century. Uh, w- w- one thing I'm, I'm, one thing I am finding, and I'm, I'm curious whether you think this applies also to the question of poverty and poverty, alle- poverty alleviation. When you get rid of 1949 as a baseline, and when you get rid of 1978 as a baseline, and you look, say, at 1900 to 2020, there are a whole bunch of measures in rural China where the issue becomes much more, or the, 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 the way of understanding it, it becomes very helpful to think of it in terms of basically global convergence or the convergence between China and global norms, global averages. It's true of literacy rates, for example. It's true of consumption. It's true of fertility. How does China look over the long term in terms of the relationship between its poverty alleviation or the, the, the lowering of poverty, sorry, not poverty, lowering of poverty alleviation and global, global trends? <laughs> That's not a small question. I'm sorry. Not, not a small question. And uh, I'll come at it from a, a a slightly different angle, and that is uh, China still insists, and there's some justification, that it's, it's a developing country. So China wants to be seen and treated as a developing country in, in a number of respects. And therefore, I'll answer your question by saying, compared to a lot of other developing countries compared to countries that were at a similar place where China was even as recently as 1949 in terms of poverty. Uh, China has done quite well. It's it's, uh, compared to, for instance, other upper middle income countries, even in Latin America, China's poverty reduction is impressive. Where where China's record is less impressive is when you compare 
with the uh, relatively small number of countries, such as Republic of Korea, uh, such as Thailand and some others who have emerged, who have done more and started earlier and reduced poverty uh, in a more impressive way. So uh, I, it's, I can't go back to the year 1900 in my mind. There, that would need data that I don't have. But when I look back just at the last you know, 70 plus years, uh, I think, and this is something that Martin Revelian has been looking at also, uh, you'd say that China has done well compared to many, but could have done much better based on how well other countries have done. And it's still far behind some that it, uh, because of the time that was lost in terms of poverty un under Mao. Thank you. So, so another way of questioning the notion of the miracle, I think is one way to interpret that, that, that answer. Yes. Um, so we've got a couple of Bill, Bill Overholt. Do you, have, do you want to pop in with the next question? But no yes, need. To... Uh, I echo Michael, and I mean, this was a wonderful talk. I, I, I learned a lot, uh, um, and I agree with uh, I agree with virtually all of your analysis. There's one point I'd like to follow up on, and, and, and that's. Um, the distinction between policy-driven reduction of poverty and uh, the period when they were just getting out of the way of the peasants. Um, uh, Kate Joe wrote a book uh, saying it had not, nothing to do with, with policy. Uh, it, it was it was the peasants and particularly the female peasants that <laughs> that uh, drove China's success, and I I guess I have a, a a question. I mean, she was more extreme than anything you said, but there's a kind of moral valence applied to getting out of the way that's different from going in and doing great stuff. Um, and I have a question about that because it, it seems to me that uh, get how much you get out of the way is very difficult uh, and very controversial. Uh, and for instance, uh, India's never figured it out. Most developing countries mm. haven't. And uh, somebody like Ronald Reagan uh, uh, thinks that uh, uh, government ought to get out of the way a lot more uh, than uh, most Democrats. Uh, uh, it seems to me that they got it about right. And in fact, they calibrated so much uh, in so many ways that they could have gotten wrong. Uh, so I wonder if it, it, it isn't more fair to, to say, well, the kinds of policy that were successful uh, changed 
according to exactly the periodization you used. Uh, but maybe maybe they get credit for uh, policy-driven reduction of poverty in, the, in that period, uh, 1978 to 85, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's... Uh... It's, it's a fair point. Uh, at the end of the day, if policy hadn't changed, then uh, what occurred could not have occurred. At the same time, I think there's a strong case to be made that in those first few years, a lot of what was happening was occurring first spontaneously at the grassroots, the, the first... Uh, the first experiments with what became the household responsibility system and similar really were, were that's been do well documented spontaneously emerging at, at the local level. And again, and I, I think uh, the way I put it during the talk is kind of how I do think of it. And I've said, these are people, the Peasants, I might use that word without any pejorative meaning. It's a, it's a word with good Chinese history, and I don't see it as a bad word at all. Uh, peasants knew how to grow more. They knew how to, how to work harder in order to produce more. They had a lot of knowledge about increasing their, their production, but they simply needed to be allowed to keep a bit more of what they produced in order to give them the incentive to do that. And uh, so in those first few years, certainly there were policymakers who were well aware of, of the need to spread these models and, and to encourage a new mindset uh, at the in party and government leadership at, at various levels to allow these changes to take place. But I, I think if I had to choose between one or the other, I would say it was primarily a matter of getting out of the way for those first few years. But that, that was just a brief period. And after that, the, the challenges became uh, the need for more proactive government policy uh, became greater, steadily greater and greater. There, there is, as you know, an enormous debate about the origins of 1978, whether it was top down or bottom up. I'm not sure what the get out of the way answer, how that sits in that binary, but that's a question for another day. Um, we have a question from another, uh, from another expert in uh, welfare and poverty in China, my colleague Nara Dillon, who asks, uh, who thanks you for an interesting overview and asks, do you think the Rural Revitalization Agency will lead to structural solutions for rural poverty or at least some more lasting development or welfare programs for the rural poor? Uh, I, I doubt it. It's, uh, to be frank, uh, from these are people I've, as you uh, I've worked with for a long time my concern is their mandate has always been pretty narrow. They, you know, this, that LGOP came out of the Ministry of Agriculture originally. It was housed in the Ministry of Agriculture for a long time. Their focus has been agricultural development and increasing agricultural incomes. 
and they're they don't really have the capacity, but they don't have the mandate because if they did, the capacity would probably be assigned to it. To look at broader social issues is, is my sense. They are still very focused on agricultural growth and growth and output. So I, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, it's not my sense. So we have a question from Lauren Sullivan, um, who asks about the impact of allowing peasants to, 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 to buy land. But if, I think you, Bill, you'll probably agree the situation is a little more, more complicated than that. So rather than that, asking that question, might I ask you to comment on um, the impact of um, changing uh, land rights in the countryside on, on, on rural poverty? I suppose... Mr. Sullivan's question might have been, what if they allow the peasants to buy land? But, but I think a more interesting question might be, how are land rights changing in the countryside? And what would be the impact of that on, on what's the impact of that on, on poverty? Yeah, um, that is a big question. Uh, I, I don't see much sign that there are going to be major changes in, in this policy in, in, the, in the coming in the next few years, I, I could be wrong, as of course. Um, as I indicated, there are 55% of China's population still has rural hukou, and, and out of those people, there are at least five, over 500 million who are actually still living in the countryside. And it's hard to imagine how China can continue to grow as an upper, become an upper income country and then become upper income is still low compared to most really advanced economies, how China can continue to develop and, and, and reach levels more like even South Korea today, let alone um, other more advanced economies without reducing the number of people who are doing farming who are living in rural areas and relying on uh, agriculture and related connected services uh, for their main source of income. It's just hard to imagine that. So inevitably, one part of reducing the number of people who are engaged in agriculture and uh, for their main sources of income, inevitably, will, it, it will have to entail land rights reforms, the ability to buy and sell land, the, the ability and for people to sell their land to get some money to allow them to move and go into some other areas and for others to uh, put together larger scale agricultural activities. So over the, over the medium to longer term, land rights reform is going to be uh, Necessary if the if uh, poverty is going to be sustainably reduced uh, going into the future, that would be my view. Although I don't see a sign, it, it's it's well. Let's see what comes out of uh, the next party congress. Sorry, I can't no, hear you. Yeah, I'm back. Okay. Uh, Lame Wong 
asks you to stretch. Uh, she wants your assessment of common prosperity on the richer, entre the richer entrepreneurs, business circles, and indeed the whole of, of the economy. So asking a lot of a, for a, an economist to describe a policy that is nascent, but what, where, where, what do you think common prosperity is, is going to do? Yeah, uh, clearly there is a danger that instead of focusing on the deep structural causes of poverty that I've mentioned, the causes of inequality, looking from the point of view of why are poor people poor, there's a danger that the party will instead target wealthier groups and say the problem is you've, you've got too much money. The problem is you're not paying enough taxes. That might be true. The tax part, the problem is you're the problem rather than uh, the structural issues that I identified. And uh, I, I, I'm not the only one who's concerned about that. Clearly, uh, this sort of seemingly haphazard way in which some of the policies this summer were released targeting different companies, different sectors, uh, pressuring individuals who are wealthy that they have to donate more to charity. I mean, these, these are worrisome signs. The, the real way to reduce inequality is to sustainably address the obstacles to growth and incomes and at, at the level at the grassroots level, the poor level, the poor household level, not to target wealthier ones. So rich entrepreneurs are probably not sleeping too well these days right now, but uh, I hope they'll be able to sleep better later. I wish we no doubt all share. <laughs> um, but I guess I guess I, I, I hope that the peasants in distress, I'm more anxious that peasants in distress will be able to sleep well than that rich entrepreneurs. But but in an ideal world, all of them, I suppose. We've got time for one or two quick questions. Um, Abdul Sufi actually asked a question that follows nicely from from your comments just now. Lots of countries have poverty reduction policies. How does ideology, she says, or they say Marxist ideology, but how does ideology in general, I think, differentiate China's poverty reduction policies from those in non-socialist countries? Interesting. Uh, the, um, that's a very interesting question. And of course, China does present this in terms of socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is a quite protean concept, um, which can adjust in many ways. And, as I sort of hinted, there are some ways in which uh, the approach to uh, poverty reduction reminds me of some U.S. conservative right-wing approaches. You, know, you don't want to you rely too much on entitlements, on social assistance and transfers, because people then will become lazy and dependent. You want to encourage and support productive activities by people. You want people to have incentives to get jobs, not to just cash their welfare checks and so on. So in some ways, the, there's that common ground between the two. But I think it is impressive to me that, as I said earlier, that she 
more than I've heard any American leader, perhaps Lyndon Johnson, perhaps FDR, but FDR was president in, the, in a time of, of such terrible uh, economic crisis. Uh, she has emphasized that in China, a socialist China, uh, the existence of widespread extreme poverty is unacceptable, that it's just not uh, consistent with Chinese vision of socialism. Whether that's Marxism or not, I, I, I can't comment, but it's impressive to me. And I, I, I dearly wish in that sense that some American politicians would uh, learn something from it. Not saying adopt Chinese practices full whole hog, obviously, but just recognize that a, a just society has to take that into uh, full consideration in its policies. Thanks so much. We've actually had a number of really interesting questions come in in the last few minutes asking you to parse the data on urban poverty, on what the rural hukou actually means, uh, the intersection between ethnicity and poverty, which is a huge, a huge and, and fascinating question. But I'm afraid we are at time and we will have to wrap things up. Um, I think uh, it's probably a, an indicator of how much interest there is in the topic that uh, the, the, your answers to questions generated new and, and intriguing questions. I apologize that we won't have time to, uh, to, uh, to ask Bill to respond to them all. Uh, let me uh, close simply, Bill, by uh, again, uh, well, expressing my regret that I cannot now take you out for a nice lunch, which would, <laughs> would, have, been, would have been delightful because I would certainly like to keep this conversation going. Um, to thank our audience members for uh, uh, joining us and for your uh, for your informative uh, quest and interesting questions uh, and uh, but but mainly to thank uh, to thank you Bill for uh, a truly uh, outstanding uh, presentation from which uh, I think we all we all uh, uh, learned uh, a great great deal uh, this is a hugely important topic that affects the future of China and therefore the future of the world so thank you very, very much, Bill. You're very welcome. And folks, my email is there. Feel free to pop me a line if uh, you want to continue discussion. These, these are topics that I'm deeply concerned with and will continue to be. Great. Thank you, Bill. I believe the critical issues goes on hiatus next uh, week, and then we will be back in two weeks on November 10th with uh, uh, Naima Green-Riley uh, speaking about China's position in the world. So please, uh, please join us for our next event. Thanks, everybody. Be well and, and uh, uh, hope to see you here again soon. Thank you. <laughs>